Um, does anybody have any famous family members? Not just in your own mind, but actually famous? Not TikTok famous? I guess that qualifies now. Um, supposedly, in my distant family tree, I have a very famous cousin um, who plays football in the National Football League. His college football team won a national championship uh, just a couple of years ago, and now he's the quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals, who made it to the Super Bowl last year. Supposedly, Joe Burrow is a distant cousin to the Hudson family. I don't know Joe. Joe definitely doesn't know me. We've never met. I don't know any of his family, really, outside of what I've been told. Uh, but so, supposedly, that's my famous cousin. Maybe he thinks I'm his famous cousin. I don't know. So it's like a famous cousin or relative and um, that kind of dynamic in your family. Uh, here's the question for us today. What if your cousin was Jesus? There's a guy in the Bible whose cousin, first cousin, is Jesus. His name is John, middle last name, baptizer. Or if you grew up in Baptist churches, you're like John the Baptist. He was the first Baptist. No, that's not what that actually means. It means he actually dunked people. He was a baptizer. Uh, but John the baptizer was the first cousin of Jesus. Now, John had a lot to say about Jesus. What did Jesus have to say about John? Here's what Jesus had to say about John in Matthew chapter verse 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the baptizer, John the Baptist, no one greater. And he uses a pretty all-inclusive statement here. No one who has been born of a woman. I think that pretty much includes everyone, right? You have to kind of clarify that in today's day and age, but <laughs> anyone born of a woman, right? John is greater than all those people. That's a pretty high compliment, uh, all-inclusive statement. Look what John, Matthew 11, verse 2 says. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. So we learn that Jesus' cousin is in prison. John the Baptist is in prison. Now, John's not in prison for the same reason that some of your cousins are in prison right now. Matthew 14 tells us that John the baptizer is in the slammer because he publicly rebuked the Roman tyrant Herod Antipas for, here we go, divorcing his, his sister the Jerry Springer episode waiting to happen. I had to make for some like, awkward family reunion moments, right? But he divorced his sister-in-law, and John the Baptist, who is this kind of eccentric, cor courageous, desert dweller slash prophet. He refuses to mince any words time and time again. He's a man's man, and he confronts Herod, one of the most cruel Roman rulers. Herod responds by throwing him in prison. Let me tell you the context of John. His cousin, John. Before he was even born, John the Baptist leaped, the scriptures say, leaped for joy in his mother Elizabeth's womb just when he heard the sound of Mary, Jesus' 
mother, just being in the presence of Jesus while they were still in the womb, the baby leaped for joy. John was this divinely appointed forerunner of Jesus, but he often minimized the significance of his role by insisting that he was merely a voice, a voice of one crying in the desert, preparing the way for one who was greater than he, Jesus. John was the first one to publicly announce Jesus as the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John exclaims. And when Jesus asked John to baptize him, the baptizer is reluctant. He initially refuses, and his response is, I'm not even worthy to tie your shoes. must increase and I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. John is one of the first who properly identifies Jesus as a Messiah who would sacrifice his life for his people. So in that context, the next words that we read in this text, very candid words, they might come across a little troubling. Verse, rest of verse 2 says, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, this is to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Shall we look for another? John sits in prison. He reflects on Jesus and he questions. He questions his fate and he's anxious. He doubts. His faith wavers. He even sends this message to Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the one? Right? He's sitting in prison for preaching the truth, and he is pointing people to Jesus. So it seems like a fair question in John's circumstance to question, is Jesus really the one? Generates this question. Guys, I'll just need to go to a handheld. Am I better off on a handheld? Like I'm in and out. How about this? If I throw this thing, just know I'm not used to <laughs> I can be like my brother a few weeks ago. He preached somewhere and he was using a handheld. And he picked up a bottle of water and drank from the water. And then he set his handheld back down here. Remember that the next time he speaks. Um, life generates these type of questions. John is unsure, and when life seems to hit him square in the mouth, he's troubled. And he is searching for answers, and he's searching for reassurance. And let's be honest, certainly Jesus will not leave him in a dungeon. He's family. John played a significant role in the ministry of Jesus. He has minimized his spotlight to emphasize Jesus. John has chosen to be a bench player and allow Jesus to be the rising star. Jesus has shown he has absolute authority over all earthly powers. So this moment, right, seems like a fitting and proper moment for Jesus to show up and show out and set John free. 
And we can, we can understand John here. Where are you, Jesus? I need you. Why have you let this happen? Why don't you come to my aid? Why don't you help out? Like, is my reward for preparing the way for you, is my reward prison and shame and hunger and isolation and torment and confusion? Like, I need you, Jesus. Are you the only one, or is there someone else that we should be looking for? I thought you were the only one, but are you? Are you? That's, that's where John is. And Jesus does not come. He's preaching, by the way, in the backwoods of Galilee of all places. Does Jesus even care? John questions. And so the baptizer sends his posse to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we be expecting someone else? If you are the one, Jesus, I could use some help here. You ever felt like John? Where are you, God? Like I, I could use some help here. Where are you? Are you the one? Are you the one? Well, Jesus replies. Look at the reply of Jesus, verse 4. Jesus answered them, go and tell John. Tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And then look at this next phrase. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Here's Jesus' response. Go tell John what you see and hear. Go tell John that miracles are taking place. Blind people see. Deaf people hear. Lepers are being cleansed. Lame People are walking. Dead people are being raised back to life. The poor are having the good news preached to them. And by the way, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The word here is, is, does not stumble over me. And our response is, what? Huh? Like, why would anyone be offended by miracles? Why would anyone stumble over the spectacular? Why would anyone fall away on account of what Jesus is doing? Unless, unless you had devoted, had, had devoted your entire life to spotlighting a Messiah who is too busy preaching in Hickville to deliver his own cousin from prison for preaching the truth. John, no matter how great you are among those born of women, no matter how devoted you are, no matter how genuine you are, no matter how sincere you are, no matter how much you have preached the truth and stood for what's right, and no matter how much of a man's man you are, and no matter how many people you have baptized, no matter what, John, in this moment, no miracle is coming your way. No deliverance, no rescue, no escape, no freedom, not today, not tomorrow, not ever. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As a matter of fact, John, in a few short days, they're going to stretch out your neck. An executioner will stretch out John's neck on a block and bring the gleaming blade of his axe down and clearly sever John's head and deliver it on a platter to a deranged ruler and his vengeful wife. And Jesus will continue on mission. Blessed is the one who is not 
offended by me. I've been in ministry long enough to watch people go through tough times. Just to watch things, listen, go from bad to worse to worse to worse. People praying and longing for change or healing or something positive to happen in their life only to face another setback, another heartache, another crisis. Why does God not notice me? Does he care? Is he even listening? Are you the one or should I be expecting someone else? But you don't understand. The blind see. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead live. The spectacular happens for other people, but not in my life, not in my circumstance, not in my pain, not in my broken marriage, not in my addiction, not in my suffering. In my situation, God seems quiet. He seems removed. He seems distant. He seems unconcerned or Calloused, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of the one who does wonderful and spectacular things for others, but leaves me in my own personal prison with the shadow of death crouching at my door. Let's be honest. There doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme and reason to God's intervention, does there? when he chooses to act and when he does not. We pray for one person and he or she is healed. We pray and pray and pray and pray and pray for another and he or she is not. God provides the exact dollar of one person's financial needs. Have you heard those stories? I needed $712 and I got a random check for $712, right? God provides to the exact penny for one person's financial needs, and the next one is forced to file for bankruptcy. One family sells a house and makes a ton of money and builds their dream home, while one family discovers foundational issues they cannot afford to fix after losing a job, and they're forced to move back in with their parents. One marriage survives, one doesn't. One addiction goes away, another doesn't. One couple is blessed with a home full of beautiful and healthy children, while another struggles to conceive only to discover their good news. When their good news arrives, it includes the reality that their little one has a debilitating disease. Blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me who do not stumble on account of me. Have you ever noticed when we read the story of Jesus, it feels like Jesus labels the most unlikely people the blessed? Like you go to the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts out the Sermon on the Mount by saying the blessed are the poor and the grieving and the meek and the hungry and the thirsty and those who are persecuted. At the end of the story, Thomas demands proof of the resurrection before he believes, right? I want to touch the nail prints in his hands. I want to see it with my own eyes. And Jesus provides that proof, and then he declares, Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Like, what is it about the wounded and the hurting and the broken and the diseased and the poor and those who have not seen that makes them blessed? The answer is found in this idea 
that those who never see, those who never experience the miraculous, those who never live life in close proximity to Jesus, they are forced to accept the substance of what faith is all about. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Here's reality. If Jesus raised every dead person, healed every disease, opened every blinded eye, met every financial need, fed every hungry stomach, appeared to every doubting Thomas, delivered every prisoner, our faith would be weak. It would be weak. If the extraordinary were the ordinary, our faith would become stagnant. This is why the Gospels refer to the spectacular, to the miracles, as signs. Hebrews calls them shadows because they point to something bigger. They point to something else. They point to, here it is, someone else. A shadow is not the finish line. Signs simply point. Mark Buchanan says about this that miracles are the fingerprints of God, not his actual hand. Let's be honest, waiting on God to show up in your life in the way that you desire is a faulty foundation upon which to build your life. The spectacular is a sandy foundation. And Jesus says over and over in the gospel, blessed are those who do not require signs or shadows to validate their faith. As a matter of fact, Jesus rebukes those who ask for them. Show us a sign, Jesus, and we'll believe. Jesus says, blessed are those who do not need signs. Blessed are those who believe and hope, here it is, without the miracle, without the cure, without the deliverance, without the breakthrough. They have not fallen away on account of Jesus or his followers. Because sometimes it's us, right? Sometimes it's the followers that leave people wounded and hurting and wondering and questioning. Is there really a God? Does he even care? His people don't seem to act like it. Anybody been through church hurt before? Like we're not doing a survey. Anybody been hurt and wounded by people who called themselves Christians before? Listen, hoping in someone is different than hoping for something. Hoping in Jesus is not the same as hoping for something that he may or may not do. We pray for miracles and for God to move in undeniable ways, but our faith does not rest primarily on the spectacular. Our faith does not rest primarily on miracles. The old hymn says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So what does any of this have to do with Easter, Devin? The resurrection. Let me bridge the gap for us. One of the most famous texts in all the New Testament on The resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to Paul's words here. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then listen to this this, this kind of next sequence. 
If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus is not raised, like, Devin, shut your mouth, let's just go home and eat, right, and hunt Easter eggs. If Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. We don't have anything to believe in if he's not raised, Paul says. We are even found to be misrepresenting if he has not been raised, our preaching is vain, your faith is vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, here it is, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then here's the verse I want to emphasize. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... In this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, these are such titanic statements about the resurrection. And again, back to verse 19. Notice Paul's language here. For if in this life only, the here and now, the temporary, the momentary, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are pitiful. We are to be the most pitied people on the planet if all of our hope is in this life only. If our hope in Jesus is relegated to the here and now only, Paul says we are hopeless. If our hope is limited to whatever divine intervention that we can somehow broker with God in this temporary space, what sickness he can cure, what prisoners he can free, what famished he can feed, if we can only put our hope in those things, if we can somehow work a deal with God in our favor, then our lives are to be pitied because we have dropped our eternal stake in those things that are passing away, the temporary. But according to Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus grounds our hope, not in something I desire, not in the here and now, but in someone. The resurrection offers hope beyond the temporary, so that whatever momentary life event that I face, it does not have the final word. And this is good news for you. No matter what happens or does not happen in the here and now, my faith rests in someone, not that something. And here's what that, what that means. Cancer does not win in the end. No matter what happens in this life, if it comes back, if it takes us out of this temporary world, it does not win in the end. Hurt does not win. Depression does not win. Addiction does not win. Here's what that means for you. Brokenness does not have the final word. Suffering does not have the final word. Abuse does not have the final word. Divorce does not have the final word in your life. Sin does not triumph. Evil does not triumph. Grief does not triumph. Death does not triumph. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees Jesus wins. When everything is said and done, no matter what we go through, no matter what he pulls us out of or does not pull us out of, Jesus wins in the end. He has conquered the brokenness. <coughs> Evil loses. 
Sin will be vanquished. Death, hell, and the grave are powerless. Hope is not just wishful thinking. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus, not just because of what he does or does not do for us in the here and now. Not just because he feeds or heals or delivers or provides for my daily needs. He may or may not do any of those things. And when he does, what? All glory and praise to him. We're going to pray that way, believe that way, and when he chooses to act that way, all praise and glory to him. He is a good and gracious father. His gifts are good and gracious gifts. Those gifts point us back to the goodness of the giver. And so we will worship the giver. When he chooses to act, we will praise and glorify and magnify him. When he chooses to to heal and when he chooses to deliver and set free and all the things that Jesus said, Go tell John these things are happening. In those moments, we will say, you are a good and gracious king. And we praise you as the giver of good gifts. But I want to tell you, those moments don't always happen. And that's why our faith and trust is not in the temporary. Our hope rests in the one who grants eternal life to those who believe in him. What this temporary world offers you is not enough because it's broken, it's fading away. It will not satisfy the emptiness of your soul today. What Jesus provides is enough because the life he gives is eternal life. It is not controlled and dictated by the temporary. So flip Paul's idea in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If our hope is only in what this life offers, we are to be pitied. Flip that. But if our hope is in Jesus and what he provides, we are not to be pitied, right? It is to be celebrated, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. He lived, he died, he lived again so that we might have life, true, eternal, lasting, fulfilling life. Here's the gospel for you today. Wherever you're at, broken, bruised, beat up, beat down, struggling, afraid, tired, questioning, doubtful, weak, empty, aimless, ashamed, guilty, dirty, restless, confused, feeling like you're not good enough, feeling like you've been hurt by the people who are supposed to love and support you, wherever you are, the gospel says, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Wherever you are, come to me. It's no coincidence that Matthew chapter 11, same words about John the baptizer, the last part of this chapter. Look what Jesus says. We've been just diving into these words in our small groups here at City Church through the gentle and lowly study. Here's what Jesus says, same chapter, Matthew 11, uh, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for, here it is, I am gentle. I am gentle, Jesus says. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, come. Come, all you who are labor, 
all who are heavy laden, all who are beat down and bruised and beat up, come and you will find rest for your souls. Here's why. Here's why we find rest. Because He deals with us gently. Here's how Ortland puts it in the book that we've been going through. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not trigger happy with you. He is gentle at the core of who He is. He is full of compassion. And so His posture towards you is one of open arms and not pointed fingers. You ever felt the pointed finger? You felt the shame, the guilt of the pointed finger from someone or something that's supposed to represent Christ? Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. If you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, come to me because I am gentle. My arms are open. He welcomes you as you are. Stop trying to clean yourself up. Stop trying to make yourself presentable and just come. Come to him. You do not need to unburden yourself. You do not need to get your act together before you come. What he offers is bigger than anything this temporary world provides. He alone has the words of eternal life. Come to him. Let me end with this illustration in the life of Jesus. One of my favorite texts in the New Testament in the story of Jesus is in John chapter 6. These crowds of people following Jesus wherever he goes, most of, most of the time they have this kind of ulterior motive to get something out of Jesus, to be fed or to be healed, uh, just, just lots of agendas on why people are pursuing Jesus. So these large crowds of people follow Jesus. He like, can't get any rest. He can't get away from the crowds. We've been talking about this in, in Mark's gospel. And so the same thing happens here in John 6. Jesus has fed, miraculously fed thousands of people and they they basically have this idea we want more right we want more bread like how 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 much of a deal is this like we don't have to work and we get free bread okay i know some of you are like us we can live on bread so we're okay with bread the crowd is basically like bring on the bread jesus matter of fact we're going to make you king you will be our king and then our bread will be endless that was their agenda Jesus has met their needs. He does the spectacular. And they say, Jesus, be our king. And here's what Jesus says in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. There it is, right? It's not about signs and shadows. Jesus says, you've seen and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, check out this promise, I will never cast out. I mean, we don't even have time to chase that, right? How beautiful a promise from Jesus. Those who who come, the Father gives will come. And whoever comes, they're not going anywhere. I will never cast them out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, right? He brings resurrection language into this. And so they are saying, Jesus, meet our needs. 
Do the spectacular. Do the miraculous. We're on board with this. We like free bread. We want to make you our king. And Jesus says it's not about the bread. It's not about the spectacular. It's not about the miraculous. It is about Jesus. Jesus says you want bread, but I am the bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus announces. And then he goes all crazy language on them and says like, eat my flesh and drink my blood and you'll have eternal life. And the crowd says, what? What is he talking about? Eat his flesh, drink his blood. And their response is this, it's too hard for us. We can't accept. It's too much, Jesus. I'm out. Free bread is awesome. Spectacular is awesome. Miraculous is awesome. Give, sign me up for that. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you will have eternal life. It's too much. It's too hard to understand that, Jesus. I, I'm just wanting my needs to be met. I'm just wanting the cancer to go away. I'm just wanting my bills to be paid. I'm just wanting my child to come back home. I'm just wanting my marriage to work out. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not stumble over me. I am the bread, Jesus says. Lean into me. Drink of me. That is where you will find your satisfaction. And so droves and crowds of people walk away from Jesus. And then in one of the most heart-revealing moments in all of John's gospel, Jesus turns to the twelve, right, who had their ups and downs, by the way, right? He turns to the twelve, sixty-six, and this many of his after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, "Do you want to go away as well? Are you bailing on me as well? Do you want to go away as well?" Simon Peter answered him, and this time Peter gets it right. He doesn't always get it right, but man, he nails it here. Simon Peter answered him, "Lord, to whom shall we go? You." You, you alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus says, you're going to walk away too? Peter says, Jesus, where are we going to go? Where are we going to turn? You alone have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? You are Jesus. You are the one. Our hope, our faith, our confidence, our belief, our eternity is in you, Jesus. We have nowhere else to turn. You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter's words here are the heart cry of every follower of Jesus. To whom else shall we go? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. We have nowhere else to turn. Through the ups and downs, good, bad, certainty, uncertainty, health, sickness, wealth, poverty, job, no job, answers, questions, understand, don't understand, joy, sorrow, prison, free, Feel close to God. Feel distant from God. Through it all. It is all you, Jesus. You are enough. 
Where else are we going to go? To whom else shall we go? This is the good news of the gospel. Not only that we cannot save ourselves, but Jesus has done everything necessary for us. He has done what we can't do. He is enough for you today. He is more than enough. And he saves you and meets you right where you are. Now, what a haunting question comparing John the baptizers to Peter's. John says, Jesus, are you the one or should we expect someone else? Peter says, Jesus, to whom else shall we go? To whom shall we go? To what shall we turn? To where shall we go? It is Jesus and only Jesus. It has always been Jesus. It is Jesus and it will always be Jesus because he alone has the words of eternal life. And so I want to encourage you today, when others turn, when others stumble, when others fall, when others drift, when others walk, we cling to Jesus and Jesus alone because he has the words of eternal life. We have the hope of eternal life. Not just on Easter Sunday, but every day. So I invite you. I invite you to follow. To come. To come. And to find rest for your soul. Not in what God does or does not provide you on this earth but on who Jesus is. And the reason that we can rest and trust in him is because the angel said on that first Easter morning, he is not here, for he is risen, what, just as he said. He said it. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And after three, after three, God's going to raise me back to life. And just as he said, it happened. It happened. He is alive. And because he is alive, every promise that he has made is to be trusted. He is trustworthy because he has fulfilled the greatest promise of all, that he would die and come back to life. And that's why we celebrate. And that's why we say, come to him. Come to him. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to clean it up. Stop trying to get your ducks in a row. Stop trying to, I'm going to do this, this, and this before I come. And just simply come. The part of coming is I have a burden that I can't bear. It's too heavy. It's too much weight on it. I can only come to Jesus and he will provide rest for your soul. You know why? Because he is gentle and full of compassion. Come to him today. Let's bow our heads for prayer.